This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice. We give you actionable intel to support what you do. One colleague to another. Well, hey, everybody. Andy here. And I'm uh, excited to, as always, have Jenna and Kevin with us uh, for the podcast. Jenna, Kevin, you want to say hello? Hi, everybody. Good to be here as always. And uh, we're really excited to have with us today, Dr. Robin Walzer. Um, hey, Robin, do you want to say a little bit about who you are and, and what you do? Uh, yeah, no. First, uh, thank you very much for inviting me to be on the podcast today. Uh, I'm really excited to be here as well. I love talking about acceptance and commitment therapy, and uh, it's one of my favorite um, things to share with people. And so I'm gl- I'm happy to be here. Uh, I suppose in just talking about myself a little bit, I am a pretty busy person, uh, which I hope to change someday, you know, not too far down the line (laughs) and uh, make it be a little less busy. I'm working at the um, Bay Area Trauma Recovery Clinical Services, uh, which is a nonprofit serving uh, community folks who've been traumatized. Uh, Super happy to be there in the San Francisco Bay Area, working as co-director. I also work at the National Center for PTSD part-time doing dissemination and training. And then I have a um, private practice of training and consultation private practice business that keeps me all quite busy. And uh, I guess I should say, by the way, that I'm not speaking on on behalf of the VA today. Well, we're super excited to have you with us. And another thing that you do is that you are an ACT trainer. And I believe all three of us have been in ACT training with you before, yeah. right? So lucky to have had that experience for sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank you. It's the one of the favorite parts of my of the things that I do. I just really enjoy it. Um, and we and we enjoyed talking with you and hearing you talk about ACT. And so we decided we just had to have you on the podcast. Um, so, so recently you um, were the keynote speaker at CDP's uh, first annual EVP conference. And you talked about a lot of really, I think, important things during uh, your keynote. One of the things that really stuck out to me, and I think also Jenna and Kevin would agree with this, is you talked about sort of the differences between fidelity and competency, and then related to competency, sort of this real need to stay connected with the model you're working from and being able to apply that in conceptualizing cases. Um, I thought that was really interesting and critical. And one of the things I was hoping we could talk some more about today, and I guess specifically when it comes to ACT, is you know how providers can uh, stay sort of connected with the model, boosts and work on their conceptualization skills, but also, you know, you talked about going from sort of those macro level sort of larger case conceptualizations to really focusing on, and the phrase you used was slices of behavior and being able to conceptualize in the moment. So I was hoping that you'd be willing to chat with us about that today. 
Sure. Happy to explore case conceptualization more fully. And I presume our audience knows that ACT means acceptance and commitment therapy. Uh, Is that a fair assumption? Well, they do now. They didn't. <laughs> I, was just, I didn't know if we had said the actual name of the therapy. And uh, no, I, I am appreciating that you tuned into that piece because I think it's pretty critical in terms of how you're implementing ACT. And if you're implementing it with both fidelity and competence, that there's piece here about how you're doing case conceptualization and remaining theoretically consistent that can be really useful in that in that territory. So what is a slice of behavior? So tiny slices of behavior are little patterns that you see a behavior either in session or are being reported to you out of session. But I'll give you some example of some in session behaviors. This might be something that the client says repeatedly. And so you're hearing a little, a piece of information again and again, something like, um, that bothers me when, Mm. and so, and then they, and then they say it again uh, at another time and another time, and you keep hearing that bothers me. And so that little tiny piece of verbal behavior feel it could be a target you could like it seems like that you're bothered a lot so that you're not looking at what it is that they're bothered about per se but that you're tuning in to what the bothering is and and how that's functioning in the person's life so that might be an example of a verbal slice of behavior other things might be maybe they look down whenever they uh, engage a particular topic or uh, maybe when you're um, doing uh, some kind of exercise with them, they always stop the exercise. So you can see that some of these tiny slices of behavior are linked to process or you know things that might be going on for them in terms of avoidance. So I'm looking for those tiny slices of behavior, and they can really help you conceptualize the case in terms of what are the behaviors that are interfering with this person's healthy functioning. Out in the world, it might be larger patterns. Uh, Let's say that you, they say that, you know, a friend of mine uh, uh, told me that I'm overreacting. And then, but you're not seeing overreactions like in the room per se. And then they uh, say, my mom said that my emotions were just too much. And you can start pulling together these little tiny indicators of patterns of behavior and you know that are happening out there in the world that feed the case conceptualization as well. I'm sure many uh, people do that, but part of what happens is folks gather a lot of information and a lot of assessment and feel like they have to put it all together in a, a, a thoughtful story, which I think is important. But there's also little pieces that you can intervene on and make a big difference for people in terms of the therapy work that you're doing. I was going to ask, what do you think gets in the way of providers and maybe especially newly trained providers in an EBP? And I'm going to go beyond ACT, but you know, ACT and beyond that. What gets in the way of them noticing those and being able to sort of pick up on those in session, do you think? Like barriers to that. 
Well, I think if they're newer providers they're and or they're new to an intervention, no matter what kind of EBP it is, they're, they tend to be focused on, am I getting it right? And they've dropped out of like just um, listening and, and paying attention to the client. I also think that, so that's one way that people can miss some of those kinds of behaviors. Another thing that can happen is that clinicians won't be paying attention to their intrapersonal signals. That the, so this is another way that I'm attending to this, what's going on in the session and how I'm implementing is, what is the client eliciting in me? Like one of the things that sort of, I think happens with some clinic, clinicians, it's almost as if they're coming in as a, a sterile deliverer of the intervention rather than a full participant in this interpersonal interaction. And so they're, and they're afraid to talk about or tune into what's happening because, you know, many clinicians also hear it's not about you, it's about the client and you don't want to, you know, be paying attention to yourself, but actually inside of that space, like what's happening for me, you can tune into process more easily and implement uh, the interventions more fluidly rather than just doing a technique and trying to get it right and sort of exiting yourself out of the uh, process. I mean, you are the, the vehicle through which this intervention is being delivered. And so it's not happening in a vacuum, right? Like you're part of it and paying right. attention to those things can be really helpful. So there's at least two ways that I can think of off the top of my head. So it sounds like one of the things you're saying is that the, the pursuit of fidelity, if you will, that, you know, like I'm, I'm checking all the boxes, I'm saying all the right things while, you know, especially somebody who's new to an intervention that that's part of the development, part of, you know, kind of learning how to make it their own, but that can come at the expense of kind of the, the point of being there and working with that person. Precisely is that the fidelity gets pushed above competency mm-hmm. and, you know, or the techniques become the therapy rather than the therapy that uses techniques. We sometimes equate those, right? Fidelity and competence. And could you like maybe say a word or two about how you see them as different? Yeah. So fidelity is, am I delivering what's in the protocol? So, you know, protocols come in, they're structured. They have certain things that you're supposed to do. Am I lining up? Am I, Am I, is there fee means truth, right? So is there truth to what it is that I'm doing according to the protocol? Competence is the quality of that delivery. Like how well am I delivering this? Is it interrelated and connected? And uh, am I doing it in ways that are relevant to the client? I mean, you know, one of the things you're pointing to, Kevin, that I think people forget about is that Best practice in EBP is not just, you know, are you doing the treatment with fidelity? Best practice, right, right, is are you doing the treatment and taking into account the client and yourself? Like there's three variables in there, you, the client, and the therapy, not just the therapy. And what, what happens with EBPs is that people tend to elevate the therapy above everything else. Right. And uh, they're, especially when people are getting trained, like they get, you know, worried that they're 
not doing it correctly. And I understand that, right? Because there's people checking in on them or they're wanting to make sure they're doing it right. So it is a, you do want to start with fidelity, but I see it as like the very beginning. Then there's a whole process of becoming competent after that. In listening to you kind of talk just now about that issue of the the sort of three factors in EBP, one is the, the therapy part of it. The other is you as the clinician and the other is the client. It, you know, it's been making me think of, so you mentioned, we've been talking about novice clinicians, but of course, you know, seasoned clinicians don't run into this ever, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was, I was thinking about a couple of clients I've, I've been working with lately and I've been feeling really stuck with a few of them. And uh, one in particular, I've kind of noticed, you know, to kind of tie this to act when we're doing act is, I mean, getting into the sort of very mindy, heady space with this client who is very, very sort of fused with thinking about themselves. And so my mind says, oh, this is a fusion read. I need to do defusion. And I've been very focused on what's the right technique, what's the right metaphor. And it hasn't been going so well. And so I noticed that and, and kind of organically what I kind of did was I reminded myself to come back to that center pillar of awareness and selfless contact with myself, you know, noticing this isn't working for me. This is feeling stuck, you know, like maybe we ought to slow things down and start to pay attention to like what's here and I need to be here for my client. Um, So I, you know, not that that was a, an intentional thing I was doing. um, And I think, you know, maybe there's a way that we can practice being more intentional about that. And so I was wondering, you know, kind of, did you have any thoughts about, you know, if if this is an area, you know, those couple of barriers you mentioned that clinicians are noticing, is there a way that, you know, maybe you could practice tuning into yourself, tuning into the client? Yes. Um, I'm a full on sort of um, attuned, bought in to the idea that if you're going to do act well, you have to be practicing it with yourself, right? That you're also working on your own openness, your own awareness, your own engagement in your values. And that that isn't just something that you uh, do in the therapy room, you practice it more broadly. And uh, that so that you can bring it into the therapy room more readily. And I think you're right on target. And he's like, wait a minute, let me slow down and see if I'm fused with an idea that I got to do diffusion in this moment. And because uh, you want to think about it functionally, not technically. So if you have a client who is sort of very heady and telling a story, they're sort of stuck in that story. It may very well be that diffusion is the thing to do, but how you do it, where it's headed, is it process oriented? Is it technique oriented? Like those are all still in play. And is it the moment to do it is also another question to ask yourself. And, you know, I'm bringing up stuff that's about moving from fidelity to an intervention to competence because timing is important as well. Like, this individual might be telling you an important story and it is not the time to do diffusion Uh, or they're telling you an important story and you've heard it, you know it, they're stuck and that the diffusion is more subtle because you don't want them to bounce off of it. 
and push away. Uh, you want to make it so they can hear it or um, the def- they're telling the story and it's important and you go right in and like, oh, I really want you to see what your mind is doing in this moment. And all of that is sort of what is the what are the contextual factors that are happening right now? And some folks who are listening out there might go, how am I ever going to hold all of those things like <laughs> right. in my mind and do those things? And I would just say, like, it's a process like, like this unfolds as you become more skilled. And I'll just say that some of the ways that we train clinicians is all about being in your head. And, you know, it's sort of this quality of do it right, follow the protocol. And we forget that, you know, our hearts are involved in this as well. And that being present to someone who's suffering is a part of that process. And so if we can sort of, again, like bringing together, like I'm here with my heart and my head, uh, working with someone who's suffering and we can relate to them as a human being rather than as a diagnosis or, you know, a problem or whatever it is that uh, they're bringing into the therapy room, I think can be part of that process of slowing down and showing up and creating a context for uh, doing different kinds of interventions. Does that answer the question, Andy? I I, I love your answer. And so I, I, what I hear you saying is a couple of things. You know, one is and being present to that person in front of you and not, not forgetting about your heart, you know, and that we're, we're there in that room to, to bear witness to another person's suffering and to be with them. Uh, so one way to maybe get reoriented back towards, you know, kind of being in the room when you notice that you're kind of mindy and trying to figure out the right thing to do is to just come right back to just being a human being in the room with the other human being. And the other thing you mentioned was, uh, you know, good act therapists are practicing act on themselves. So whether that be right in the room with the client, you know, diffusing from unhelpful thoughts. So Kirk Strassel, uh, I heard a talk by him a, a couple of weeks ago, and he mentioned one of the thoughts that clinicians really get fused with is I have to help this patient, which, which it was really interesting, but you can you can see where you get stuck there. But so practice, whether it's practicing diffusion, for example, in the room, but also, you know, in your life outside the the therapy room too. So those seem to be two really useful pieces of advice. I was just going to say, I couldn't agree more. And um, Kirk is just one of my favorite human beings. And so how could I, you know, not say, yeah, that's exactly right. Like, Helping is a value, uh, but it also also the client has to join us in that process. I was just going to say, I was thinking as as I was hearing Andy talk about that, that um, I'm you know I'm one of our PE trainers, and so I talk about PE quite a bit. And we often talk about when we're trying to get that um, appropriate level of engagement with our clients. So we want one foot in the past and one in the present. And I, and I was sort of thinking how as we, as providers, it's helpful if we have like one foot in our head and one foot in our heart, you know, that we don't have both feet in our head and we can't be all heart either because that's way 
that's way too much. Right. Um, but, but to be able to put that one foot and that's a terrible foot in the heart, but you know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> to be able to have maybe one I'm hand on our I'm heart and one hand on our head, maybe that's better. Uh, that it, it, it's a little vulnerable though, right? Because it's so easy to just stay totally in the head. And it's, it's when we, you know, sort of learn to titrate what's how amount much of my heart can I lit in here and still be helpful. Um, and I, again, especially if one's working with somebody who's survived a trauma, um, I think for, again, many, especially early career therapists, it's, it's just a lot safer to stay up here in the head. Um, and it's kind of experience and over time allows that appropriate engagement with both of those components, maybe. And along with that, I was going to say too, we, we, we can almost watch that happen when we're doing consultation with folks. And I love that moment where you know, Jenna and I do consultation for PE. And so some of the folks we consult with will sometimes talk about the client that they're working with and the difficulties that they're having and the emotions that are in the room. And they'll say, but I know I was supposed to go on and say this thing, or I was supposed to start this you know, intervention, um, but we, it seemed like this was really important to stick with. Is that okay? And it, it's this, it's really or gratifying. Say, I actually. did it wrong. I did it wrong right. because I, you know, attended to this thing in the moment. And it's like this growth moment, right? Where they, they, they kind of, they know what the, the, the protocol says to do, but they're kind of recognizing what the purpose was. And they stuck with that, which is really great. And I, I'll tell them, you know, the protocol police aren't going to come and haul you away. You actually <laughs> are doing the right thing here. And, and it's, it's this moment where they're recognizing, oh, wow, I didn't screw this up. I actually did it better. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, th- those are beautiful moments when people can like, oh, it's okay, and I can do that. Right. I mean, there's a, I, there's a. This is probably just a personal opinion, and I don't. I'm sure there are some folks out there who would agree with me, but the way we've moved in psychology, in some ways, has I think not helped our clients, is we've kind of followed the medical model, we're chasing after labels and making ourselves into technicians. And that is not what I signed up for. And if I'm, if I'm going to be in the room working with someone, I want to enjoy my job. I want to be a part of that job. I'm going to do better work under that circumstance. I don't want to just be a technician. I don't know if I shared this with you guys uh, at an earlier point when we've been talking, but I did a particular intervention for six years, very structured do this, do this, do this, do that. You know, like each session is first this, then this, then this, then this. And by the six years in, I was just like, I cannot do another session of this. It's sucking my will to live because I'm just repeating. I'm a technician, right? Like I'm just repeating the same thing over and over again. And um, I, I, that's not what I, how I want to be in the room. I want to come in and be fluid and connected. I want to look, work from both the um, verbal level, like what's our, what our, what is our head saying? And I don't want to work from the experiential level. What do you feel like it kind of, the way we've moved is it sort of taken us into, we're just heads, right? I always think, think of um what's that show on tv the cartoon where they are in bottles of their it's a cartoon um with um oh i can't think of the name of it it's futurama right futurama that's Mm -hmm. it where they're like nixon is still alive but he's just a head in a jar of with water 
Like, let's not do that. We're not just heads. Our whole bodies are participating in the world and feeling and responding and connecting and learning. And uh, I want to, I want to, as a clinician, recognize that in myself and in my clients. That can feel hard to teach too, though. I think, again, that's kind of why as we teach interventions and we do consultation, um, it's not that it, we can't, we can't teach and we can't grow that and give permission for that. But I think, again, that's kind of the harder thing to, you know, teach, teach and, and supervise and, and look for how somebody's doing. So I, I think that's why a lot of us that are involved in disseminating feel like the workshop is the, the starting place. Like Robin, you were just saying like the, the technique or the, the protocol is the beginning piece, right? We're just kind of getting them started. And then all the growth that happens after that, as they're working on it and practicing it and implementing it and getting consultation and feedback and learning where all those places where you, you follow you know, what's going on in that room and, and, and you, uh, you develop competence to go with the fidelity. Um, that, that's why that's so important that the workshop's not the last time that you learn anything about this. Precisely. And we know, like uh, I said in my talk at the conference, you know, we're sort of, you can't survive on a train and hope model, right? Yeah. You got to get in there and um, keep at it. And the other piece about if we're looking at ACT specifically, if you're following it in terms of conceptualization, it is a ACT in context approach. And so the functional aspect of it is an ongoing unfolding deal. And so to assume that the protocol is going to map onto that uh, is not going to be easy if that's where you're kind of stuck. You take away sort of the function of behavior gets lost in that moment because you're now just, you know, working from your head and not looking at what is this behavior about? What is the purpose of this behavior? And I'm going to design what I'm doing based on that versus just what the protocol tells me to do. So, I, you know, I'm just wondering if now at the risk of saying something that's like asking you to give us some very simple rules to follow to then become better at conceptualizing and bring your hearts into the room. That's not what I'm after here, but curious if you have some ideas about how clinicians who want to get better at sort of organically conceptualizing cases on the fly from a functional perspective to get their sort of hearts back into the room to sort of rediscover and reconnect with themselves and their clients when they're getting kind of up in their head and just a sort of a, a brain in a jar sitting across from the patient. Um, do you have just maybe a couple of thoughts, some actionable intel um, for clinicians who'd like to sort of move in that direction? Well, one of the things that comes to mind firstly is asking yourself on an ongoing basis, what is the purpose of this client's behavior? Like what are what are they getting from it? What are the consequences? What's sustaining it? And um, knowing that is really gonna assist with where you should go. So you want to ask that question, but you also want to ask this question, what is the purpose of my behavior, right? Am I addressing the function or am I just doing a technique? And so if you can think as you're conceptualizing 
you know, just as a another kind of thing to keep in mind is like it should be called case conceptualizing with emphasizing that ing, right? Like this is an ongoing functional analysis. It's an ongoing process, but not just of the client's behavior. It's of your behavior as well. What am I and what is the purpose of what I'm doing? That will pull you out of that technique oriented space because now you have to understand why you're doing diffusion in this moment instead of just I'm doing diffusion in this moment. And uh, is that purpose taking me? And this is the second thing I would recommend. So understanding the purpose of behavior, mine and the clients. And then secondly, what's our arc of therapy? What's our trajectory? So the client has come to me and said that they're hoping for something. They want something. And after a values assessment, I'm going to, you know, see what that thing is. And of course, it's, we're not looking at, I want happiness, right? We're, because we're undermining that as a outcome. Certainly we want our clients to experience happiness, but as an arrival point, it's not going to happen. So what are the values-based things that you, that you want in your life? And so the second thing I'm doing when I'm thinking about what is the purpose of behavior is I'm also thinking, and is it moving us in that direction? The client has noted and said that these are the things that they want to see happen in their lives. Is what I'm doing here and now linked to what's going to happen there and then? So I want to stretch that that idea of what is the function across time and is it helping the client to arrive in that space? Uh, so I want to keep the arc of the, of where we're headed in mind as well. Now it could change, but that people's values don't tend to change that much. Like the specific goals might change, but I'm always sort of thinking about what is the purpose and is it linked to this thing that they've told me that they want? And if they come in and say, I want something else, okay, let's shift. But then I'm going to link what I'm doing to that thing and uh, uh, focus in on what's happening there. So there's, so you've got purpose of behavior and what is the arc? Is, is the purpose, are the purposes linked to that overall arc? And that'll help with your case conceptualization as well. And then just as a sort of small tip, something that you can do right away, because that's a process what I'm talking about, right? Like that's a, a moving towards competency is to really recognize uh, on the hexaflex, the six core processes, what are the pathological processes that um, align with those six core processes? What are the mechanisms that's getting the client stuck? <laughs> And so if you're asking, well, that's sort of a purpose question too, but like if you think about fusion, avoidance, living in the past, worrying about the future, identifying in a, just as a certain sense of yourself without, um, uh, you know, sort of seeing the broader aspects of you, out of touch with your values and not taking action or behaving impulsively. Like if you can be thinking about those things as you're, you know, seeing the client across from you, where are there places that these processes, these pathological processes are showing up? Remind, reminding yourself that it's not the person that's a pathology. There's behaviors that aren't working here. 
So I think uh, knowing the uh, pathological processes, the arc of therapy, and uh, the purpose of behavior, like those three things, if you can keep working on those three things, I think that will that will really assist people in conceptualizing cases. If they want, if they want to, like, look at the, um, you know, there's a act case conceptualization form in the uh, Learning Act Second Edition, and practice there, right? Like practice writing things down and understanding it there. But I would say, let yourself expand beyond that a little bit as well, right? Like practice, but then see if you can, you know, maybe put the piece of paper away and just do it in your head, something like that. Are those the kinds of things you're looking for, Andy? I hope they don't feel too ephemeral. (laughs) No, I mean, I think that sounds great. I mean, you gave some very sort of straightforward practical advice. One is to sort of continually ask yourself, what is the purpose of the client's behavior and what is the purpose of my behavior? Um, Second, really thinking about what, what the clients asked of you, what their values are, what is it they want to work towards. And once you've kind of gotten a sense of, purpose is what we're doing now linked to that. Is that moving us that in that direction? And that third part, you know, really doing your homework and understanding the hexaflex and not just the, you know, psychological flexibility processes, but the psychological inflexibility processes um, and getting better at maybe recognizing, okay, well, if we're not moving in a direction of what the client values, which of these processes might be in the room and get better at sort of noticing and targeting that. And doing that with either a conceptualization form, but once you've kind of internalized some of those ideas, you know, just doing that kind of on the fly. So I, I think those are really very useful pieces of advice. Yeah, no, uh, well said. Uh, well, you said it. I just line. summarized it. <laughs> That's why we have Andy on this. Really good summarizer. <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> so is there... um maybe a link or a place where we might be able to, um, you know, sort of reference or get folks to some, some tools like the Hexaflex or other conceptualization tools um, that might be helpful for folks who want to work on it in that particular way? Well, so I definitely think that folks can look on contextualscience.org, which is the ACBS organization, Association of Contextual and Behavioral Science, uh, which houses ACT. And uh, there's lots of materials on that website. And you can just search up case conceptualization and you'll find a number of different kinds of just ready-made tools that can assist with part of that. And people might consider, um, you know, working their way through something like a learning ACT as a way to get themselves started and really dive into getting to know the processes and and because it has you like do experiential exercises yourself and think about you know different things that they're doing and I might I mean I feel a little funny saying this but if you're really interested in thinking about what how you're showing up maybe maybe pick up the heart of act and walk through that one as as well Um, because both of them I think put together kind of take you from that here's the fidelity and the things you should be thinking about to here's more moving towards competency and living this experience um, yourself and then bringing it into the, into the therapy room. Fantastic. Well, Robin, um, I am so thankful and grateful that you could be here with us today. And thank um, you so much. 
Yeah, I wish so I wish we could talk to you for more several more hour, hours, but I know you are <laughs> a very busy person. So we're we're thankful that you spent this time with us. No, uh, thank you again for inviting me, and happy to be here anytime. We will take you up on that. Most right. likely. Yes. Got that. That's on record. That's recorded. <laughs> <Right. laughs> Happy to do it. Happy to do it. Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice. Please feel free to subscribe, rate, and join in on the conversation in the comments. Until next time.